Amen. All right, saints, Zechariah chapter 4 um, this evening. Now, we have been going through these visions of Zechariah. We've talked about it last week, how he had eight visions in totality. We dealt with the first four there in the first three chapters, and now we'll deal with the next four here in these next three chapters. Once we're dealing with the visions, the last vision we had was the, the reinstatement of the high priest of Israel. God brings once again um, Joshua and he brings him and he says he's a brand plucked from the fire and they take off the filthy robes and they put on the clean restoration of the priesthood. What we see now as we come into verse 4 is a deeper restoration. The priesthood has been, the high priest has been set up, the calling is there. He's been cleansed, he's been purified, and now we kind of move over to a direction, not just the priesthood, but the temple itself. And, and that is the, the calling of Israel, because Israel was supposed to be a kingdom of, of priests and kings, and yet through their own disobedience, their own sin, God had restricted the priesthood to the Levites. He restricted the kingship, then, of course, we'll see, to the tribe of Judah through David and his descendants. But it begins this, Zechariah 4, verse 1, Now the angel who talked to me came back and wakened me. Again, another vision. And he wakened me as the man who is wakened out of his sleep. So he has this vision of what he is. He's kind of like in a dream state, kind of in an awake state. He's not sure where he is. But he has this vision. And this angel said to him, and he said to me, what do you see? And I see I'm looking and there is a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it. And on the stand, seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Two olive trees are by it, one at the right of the bowl and the other at its left. And so I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me answered and said, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. So he answered and said, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. We understand that as he sees this vision, he sees this lampstand. And with the lampstand, the lampstand then has seven lamps. In other words, like the menorah that is found there in the temple. And as he's supposed to be building the temple, it would make sense how a vision is what? It comes with part of the furnishings that are there in the temple. And within that menorah, what would happen is the priest would go in once in the morning, once in the evening, and they would go and they would fill all the bowls for the oil, trim all the wicks and make them all clean and pretty and ready to go for the day. Then at night they would do that again. So there would be a continuation, a continual burning of that light there in the holy place. And we see that he sees this lampstand of solid gold, as it would need to be there in the holy place. And then on top of it, on the stand, seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. So you have these bowls, and then they feed into these, these lamps that are there on that lampstand. Now, normally what would happen is the priest would just fill each lampstand itself, but this is unique because all of a sudden there is this bowl that has these tubes that feed into the seven lamps, and so man doesn't have to fill them. It's a continual filling, and it's God who's filling because we see here, verse 3, and there were two olive trees by it, one at the right of the bowl and the other at its left. And so we begin to see here, verse 11 and 12, I want you to shift there so you understand what these two olive trees are. 
In verse 3, it said there are two olive trees by it. In verse 11, he, I, then I answered, said, what are these two olive trees at the right of the lampstand and at its left? And then verse 12, and I further answered and said to him, what are these two olive branches? Notice there's trees and there's branches. So there's a distinction here. In verse 3, he talks about the tree. In verse 11, he talks about the trees. But in verse 12, he said, what are these two olive branches? And he gets an answer to what they are. What are these two olive branches that drip into the receptacles, the two gold pipes from which the, from which the golden oil drains? So we understand that there are two trees that are there on either side of the menorah. And along with the tree, there are two branches that come over these two bowls. And these two branches continue to drip oil into those two bowls. And so there's something unique that begins to happen here. Now, when we're looking at these two olive trees or these two olive branches, one of the things that we kind of have an understanding is this that they would be representatives of one of two things. One would be the political Israel or the kings of Israel, could be one olive tree, and then the other would be the priestly um, house of Israel or the high priests of Israel. So one is the political, one is the spiritual. So we're recognizing that one of those will be Zerubbabel, the other will be Joshua. So if you have two olive trees, they are the political house or the, 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 the kingdoms or the kings in the kingdom. The other would be the priestly house or the, the high priest within it. And then you have two branches that are reaching out, individual now. And those two branches, although you have all the kings that come and they should be giving glory to God, all the high priests, they should be giving the glory to God. At this moment, there's two. There's two branches specifically. One is Zerubbabel, who's the governor. The other is going to be Joshua, who's the high priest. They are continually being supplying light into these receptacles. In other words, but it won't be through might. It won't be through power. It'll be by the Spirit of God. But God is choosing these two and so when we look at these two olive trees, I want you to make a note here of just one passage. In Revelation chapter 11, I want to read verses 3 and 4 to you, but we see here that there, the Lord says this in Revelation 11 verse 3, I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy 1,260 days. In other words, there's going to be these witnesses. They'll be prophesying for um, three and a half years. And then he says this, they will be clothed in sackcloth. And then he says this in verse 4 of Revelation 5, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. Again now, he makes a reference of these two being the olive trees. In other words, they're representatives of those two aspects of Israel, political, spiritual. And as we note this here, they will then be given power. Now, when we look at these two olive trees that are in Zechariah's vision, we see, according to verse 3, there were the two olive trees by it, one at the right hand of the bowl, the other at its left. Now, we know, according to verse um, 12, that they are the ones who are dripping oil into these bowls. And to clarify a little further about who are these two olive branches, verse 14 of this chapter says, these are the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. So we understand the anointing. Same thing to those two that were there in Revelation. And so he asked a question with these olive trees, and I spoke verse 4 of Zechariah 4, I spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me answered, Do you not know what these are? Now, he sees this vision. He's not clueless. You know, he's like, I don't know. So he asked him, What are these? And amazingly, the angel says, um, Do you know? 
He goes, no, I don't. Now, what's interesting is this. There's a question that has it that's here, and he doesn't answer the question right away. So much so that he gets almost this, this, this angst about him, where in verse 11, he has to, and I answer and said, what are these two olive trees? I need to know. Do you understand <laughs> that he kind of like holds back a truth, and he wants to know, he wants to know, and, and, and he's, he's seen this incredible work, but he doesn't have the clarity. So he asks, of course, this angel a second time. The first time he doesn't give him the, the, the clear answer, but verse 5 says this, And the angel talked with me, answered and said, Do you not know what these are? And I said to him, No, my Lord. So he answered and said, The word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Do you know what these are? I don't have a clue. Well, here's the word that God gave to Zerubbabel. And he makes this statement. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So we see this not by might, not, nor by power. Understand that that might would be a conglomeration of power of many. You would kind of see it as maybe a, a, a collective power, a military power. So that's what might is. Might is, is, is what collectively we can gather and, and do a work as far as what an army could or a group of men do it. It's more collectively. But then you have that term power, not by might, which is a collective power, or by power, which is an individual power. And I love the heart of this, because it isn't by a, a military might, it isn't by the, this human power, or that, that individual, or a collective power. God says what? It's by my spirit. So it isn't just one man doing the work, and it's not many men doing the work, it's the spirit of God leading men to do his work. This is the heart, and this is how this will be accomplished. Now, keep in mind, there is still dealing with the building of the temple. So he has this word that he's given by God. And then you have this question that now comes up, and it says this, Who are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? You shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. So as he asked this question, who are you, great mountain? Now that mountain is, commentaries are, are divided to what this mountain actually is. Some say the mountain is the amount of work, this huge amount of rubble that's there in order to get the temple built. That might be true. However, keep in mind, what do we know? Well, the rubble has been cleared. They already have a foundation, and they've had the foundation. The foundation hasn't been built for about 16 years, but they have a foundation. The rubble itself was cleared. So I don't really think that that's it. One it could be is now, is it the mountain of all the obstacles that have to be overcome? They have to have finances. They have to have manpower. They have to have all these other things. Is that the mountain? Well, it could be that as well. However, remember what stopped the building in the first place. The thing that stopped the building were the people who were there in the northern area. They wanted to come along and build it, according to Ezra. And the Jew says, no, this is our work. You can't be a part of it. So they wrote a letter to what? They wrote a letter to Babylon. And when that letter got there, he said, oh, yeah, you guys got to stop the work. Now, there's a passage, and I just want to share it with you, found in Jeremiah chapter 51, verse 25. Let me simply read it to you. The Lord says this. I want to read verse 24 and verse 25 so you can understand what this mountain is. But in verse 25, he says, I will repay Babylon, speaking of I will repay Babylon and all the inhabitants of Chaldea, for all the evil they have done in Zion and in your sight, says the Lord. Behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain. So that mountain could be this mountain of Babylon. And when God comes along and he says, listen, I'm against you, O destroying mountain. And he says, who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. So what is the power of Babylon when God calls a leader to move? And the answer is nothing. You've got a great mountain. He flattens it down to a plain. So I, I think that that's a really good understanding of really kind of what that mountain is. There's another passage in Revelation 8, verse 8. I want to share that with you because there are some commentaries that feel this is the case. 
but it makes this statement. Revelation 8, dealing with here now the, the, the first trumpet that is now um, going on and will be you know, cast in there, or dealing with the second trumpet, it says this, Then the second angel sounded something like, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. And so they say that this mountain is the mountain of revelation that goes and is cast into the sea and destroys the life that's there. And so I'm just giving you that because that's where most scholars go. Is it just the amount of work that's involved? Is it that, you know, revelation? Because everybody wants to go to revelation. I kind of think just I stick with, with that portion of Jeremiah chapter 51. Verse 25, where it talks about the destruction of Babylon. Babylon was the one to stop the work, and I believe that, that can Babylon stop the work? No, it can't, not when God is there. So if there are other references that you may think is a mountain that needs to become a plain, then simply fit it, fill it in, look at it in the context, and see if it makes more sense than what I've shared. Now he says this, verse 7, who are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. The capstone is when all the temple is finally going to be, it's all set, it's all set, that the last stone is there, the capstone. And he goes, oh, grace, grace. Do you understand that he talks about this grace is going to be the one that builds forth the temple. And when the very last stone is put in place, this capstone, then there's going to be shouts of what? Oh, the grace of God, the grace of God. So we begin to see that God has a great desire to, of course, see his temple built. That's why he said initially, hey, why are you guys sleeping? Why are you guys building your own houses? My house lies in room. Let's get it built. And so we see here that he says, Zerubbabel, you are going to finish this temple. However, it's going to be my work. It's not going to be just you. It isn't the might. It's not the power. It's not the, the, the corporate strength or the individual strength of you, Zerubbabel. It is my spirit. And my spirit will work in you. My spirit will work through the people. But it is going to be one thing. End of verse 7. Grace. Grace. There's this dual fold grace that it says that's what it is. It's grace, it's grace, it's grace. Moreover, verse 8, the word of the Lord came to me saying, The hands of the Zerubbabel have laid the foundations of this temple. His hands shall also finish it. I love the fact, as you started it, you're going to finish it. And, 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 and this is the Lord. He who began a good work in you, Philippians 1.6, able to complete it. And he says, as Zerubbabel has started, I'm going, to, I'm going to finish this. He's going to know it. And so the hands of Zerubbabel, who've laid the foundation of this temple, verse 9, his hands shall also finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. When it's done, Zechariah said, <laughs> you know I was called. You know that God had called me to do this. And so the angel itself is saying, you know, as all this is there, you're going to understand, this is God's work. Now verse 10, for who has despised the day of small things? For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line of the hand of Zerubbabel. They are the eyes of the Lord, which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. At this point, once again, he asks this question, as they look at this foundation that's about, you know, was, was laid, and now the temple that's going to be built. And so he asked, who has despised the day of small things? Now, is he referring to simply the foundation? That's a possibility. It's only the foundation, but God says, hey, don't worry about the foundation. The foundation is what? It's the foundation to build something upon. It's okay to have a foundation, we look to say, I want the building, I want the building, I want the building. But God says, I'll tell you what, the key is not the building. The key is the foundation. Remember the Gospel of Matthew. There is a wise man and there's a foolish man. The wise man, he digs and he puts his house on what? On the foundation, on the rock. And he builds upon that, but it's upon the foundation first. It's not the building, it's the foundation so when the wind comes and the rain comes, they beat against the house. And what? The house stands because it was built on a foundation. It was built on the rock, the foundation of what was important. 
But there's another man who simply just builds his house on the sand. He doesn't dig down. He doesn't find the rock. And he builds on it. And so it's about the building, but it isn't about the building. It's about the foundation. Because when the wind comes, the rain comes, it gets the house that's built on the sand. It falls, and it says, and great is its fall. There's a wise man, there's a foolish man, and it's all about setting the foundation. And I love the heart because here, when you look to it, is it the foundation? And it could very well be. Don't despise just because it's the foundation. Another possibility is this. Remember when we were going through um, the book of Ezra, and we quoted this passage earlier here in Zechariah. We also quoted it there with Haggai. But, but there in Ezra chapter 3, I want to start reading in verse 11, and I'm going to read down to verse 13, because this is when the people see the outline of the foundation. So here in Ezra chapter 3, verse 11, and they sang responsively, praising, giving thanks to God, for he is good and his mercy endures forever. Then all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. So there's an excitement going on about the foundation is set. Now, verse 12 says this, but many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy. So the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout and the sound was heard afar off. So we begin to see here that within this, if the temple's not as great and grand as you think it should be, remember this. That huge temple that was built was destroyed. Don't think that, oh, it has to be bigger. God said it doesn't have to be bigger. It has to be me, and it has to be dedicated to me. You can have a great building. If it's not dedicated to me, it's not given over to me, then I don't even want it. So you had this great, amazing temple that everyone said, we want it to be like this. And God said, I, didn't, I left it. Why would you want it to be huge, the one that I left? I want it to be one that I come and enter into. Now, there's a passage that we looked at a few weeks ago. We were in Haggai chapter 2, verse 3. Let me simply read it to you. He says this, Who left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now in comparison with it? It's not, is this not in your eyes as nothing? So when you see this outline now, you think it's nothing, and you saw the other was great. Well, keep in mind, I left the other temple. I'm here now. I'm wanting this now. So it isn't about this great thing. It isn't about this mighty thing. It's about the faithful thing. And I think that's what's so important. It isn't about having something great and mighty. It's even faithful in the smallest of things. Talking about faithfulness in the smallest of things, you guys remember that passage that where the, the Lord was there in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, and he was there and he was looking at how people put money into the treasury. And in, in chapter 12, verse 42, it says this, Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which make a quadrants. She gave basically what would be like a quarter of a penny. This, that's it. But... To everyone else, is like, look, she didn't give hardly anything. But in reality, what? You may think it's small, but God says, oh, I saw all these other people. But I'm telling you, this one, he says in verse 43, As surely I say to you, this widow, widow has put in more than all those who have put a, given to the treasury. For they all put in the abundance, and she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. The Lord knew. It's interesting, there's an actual formula that people do, and it's a little bit higher than, than what it would be now, but what they say is this, those two mites, if they were put into a bank at that time, in just about 2,000 plus years, if you had a 4% interest compounded semi-annually, if you had that, the, the amount of those two mites would equal 4%. 0.8 billion trillion dollars. 
We could get out of debt finally for at least a week or two, but we could get out of debt finally. Do you imagine how such a little thing can grow into something huge? Because if God starts something now, guess what happens down the road? It, it, it doubles and quadruples and it just keeps compounding and compounding. This is what it is. Guys, don't despise the days of small things. Don't, don't, re, don't you think that I'm not going to do even a greater work? It starts here. It starts small, but it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So much so that what he says, hey, you guys got to measure out Jerusalem. Because you don't have enough room for the amount of people that I'm going to be bringing in here. I'm going to be bringing Gentiles in here. It's going to be so huge. This is what God does. And it's so beautiful to see here. And I love the heart because there in verse 10, he says, who has despised the day of small things? Are you upset because it isn't as big as you think God wants it to be? And yet he says, are you after big? Are you after God's glory? Are you after faithfulness? And this is what it's all about. So often we want to do huge things for God. And he says, how about just going and talking to your neighbor about my grace? How about just giving your, the testimony to, to you know, a, a friend that you haven't seen for a while? Don't think that little things like that aren't huge. You know what Paul says? He says, listen, one plants, one waters, and what? God brings the increase. All it is is a little seed. All it is is a little water. But God is going to do a greater and greater work. Who has despised the day of small things? For these seven... He says in verse 10, rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. In other words, that which helps will get you straight walls, the, the, make the temple beautiful so it's not all wee, wee wobbly and stuff. And they are the eyes of the Lord. So they talk about these seven. Now, is he referring to, back in verse 2, where he said, what do you see? I said, I, I'm looking and there are a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it and a stand of seven lamps with seven pipes. Is that's what he referring to? Are these the seven? And I don't think so. Actually, go back to chapter 3 and look at verse 9 for just a second. And I think this is a more proper you know, understanding of what it is. He says, Behold the stone that I have laid before Joshua, cornerstone Jesus Christ, Upon the stone are seven eyes, and behold, I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts, and then I will remove the iniquity of the land in one day. So we understand these seven eyes, and according to Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, let me read it to you. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne, the four living creatures in the midst of the elders to the Lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns. And seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And now we begin to see. When we look to this, if you look to those seven and not think of it as the seven lamps, but you look to it back in chapter 3, verse 9, the seven eyes, let's read it in that context. For who has despised the day of small things? For these seven, the seven eyes, Rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. They are the eyes of the Lord which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. See, so when, when you look to these commentators, they want to try to spiritualize these lampstands and these lamps. They're simply lamps, and of course they could be an, uh, a part of illuminating God's seeing but understand that what he says about these eyes is what? At the end of verse 10, which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. They're not just limited to the temple. They're not just limited to Israel and the, the priesthood that's there. They are for the whole earth. And that's why I think that the proper understanding of these eyes would be chapter 3, verse 9. And now verse 11. And then I answered and said to him, what are these two olive trees at the right of the lampstand and at its left? So you had these two olive trees. And further I answered, and what are these two olive branches that drip into the receptacles of the two gold pipes from which the, gold, from which the golden oil drains? 
She says, who are these trees? What are these branches? And I said, verse 14, these are the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. At this point, what we'll be looking at is, is that we're going to see here that they will be Zerubbabel and Joshua. That's the heart of what we're looking for. And so they are the two that God has chosen to be his representatives of both the political and the spiritual direction of Israel. And now we see in chapter 5, it shifts just a little bit and says, And then I turned and I raised my eyes and I saw a flying scroll. And he said to me, What do you see? So I answered, I see a flying scroll and its length is 20 cubits and it's with 10 cubits. And he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole earth. Every thief, every thief shall be expelled according to this side of the scroll. And every perjurer shall be expelled according to that side of it. And I will send out the curse, says the Lord of hosts. It shall enter the house of the thief and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name. It shall remain in the midst of his house and, sh sh and consume it with its timber and its stones. So now we see that there is a scroll. And it's a really big scroll. And it just happens to be a flying scroll. Now, it's not Bullwinkle and a flying scroll. It's a scroll difference. There's one, one is, is little rocky, the other is a giant scroll. So we see here, he says, I see this flying scroll and its length is 20 cubits. It's with 10 cubits. Why is that significant? It's significant for one reason. If you're familiar with the dimensions of the tabernacle that was there in the wilderness, I want to give you a couple of verses to jot down, and then I'll turn there and explain it, and then you can kind of go over it again in your notes as I do. But write these verses down. Exodus chapter 26, verses 16, 18, 20, 22 through 23. So Exodus 26, verse 16, 18, 20, 22, and verse 23. Why am I going and trying to explain what this is? Well, in Exodus chapter 16, let me share with you what here God begins to direct um, as far as what his heart is. Exodus chapter 26. If I said 16, I'm in error. Exodus chapter 26. In Exodus chapter 26, beginning in verse 16, we see this. As God gives direction to Moses on how to build the tabernacle, he says this, 10 cubits shall be the length of a board and a cubit and a half shall be the width of each board. 10 cubits high, 15 feet, and a cubit and a half. Now a cubit is the, the span between the tip of your finger and your elbow, approximately 18 inches to the average man. And that's what would be considered a cubit. It's about 18 inches, it's a foot and a half. So we see here that the, the cubits, 10, would be 15 feet. Cubit and a half now is, is going to be, basically you're looking at about three feet is what, what, the, what the directions are. And so um, 18 inches for each board, two boards equal three feet. Now, let's look at verse 18. Now we know that it's 15 feet high and, and a cubit each, 18 inches wide. Verse 18 says, You shall make the boards for the tabernacle, 20 boards for the south side. You shall make 40 sockets of silver. And then verse 20, And for the second side of the tabernacle, the north side, there shall be 20 boards. Why do I say this? On, on both the north and the south, the longest sides of the tabernacle, they say 20 boards. What does that mean? 18 inches, you got what? 30 feet. So 30 feet along the sides. Now, on the sides of it, what do you have? You have the two-thirds being the holy place, one-third being the most holy place, correct? So the length of the holy place is 20 cubits. 
kind of just like what we saw here, 20 cubits being the length of that scroll. Now, the next part to look at is verses 22 and 23. It says this, And on the far side of the tabernacle, westward, this is the backside now, you shall make six boards. Six boards would be nine feet. Well, we're, we're shy here. Shouldn't it be, you know, 15 feet? And so if you have the six boards at, you know, a cubit and a half, then you, you're, you're, you're shy. But then he says this, and you shall also make two boards for the two back corners of the tabernacles. So all of a sudden, now we see here that you have the six and then you have two boards and then on either side. So you're now dealing with the 10. So you're dealing with what? 15 cubits. So understand all that to be said is that this scroll that he sees flying has something written on the top side and something written on the bottom side. And that's what it says. Let me read it to you again. He said to me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits. It's with 10 cubits. And he said to me, this is the curse that goes out from over the face of the whole earth. Every thief, every thief shall be expelled according to this side of the scroll. Every perjurer shall be expelled according to that side of it. So you understand the scroll has writing on one side and another side. And the two sides are interesting that this scroll could literally fit over the dimension of the holy place of the tabernacle. The exact dimension that the priest would go in and minister, there are two writings, one on one side, one on the other side. Now, on the one side, it is written what? Every thief. Every thief. And on the other side, every perjurer. Now, what's unique is this. If you take a look at the commandments there in Exodus chapter 20, as you look to those commandments, what we begin to see is this. There in Exodus 20, we see that one of the commandments, when we get to the eighth commandment, it says, you shall not steal. Ah, the commandment dealing with man. And it says very simply, you, you take what is yours, you accept what is yours, do not steal someone else's things. Do not covet them, do not steal them. So you have one commandment written for the things of man, and then it's perjury. The perjury is interesting. Most scholars take this to be that commandment where he says in the third commandment, verse 7 of Exodus 20, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Swearing to God and then saying, oh, but I don't mean it. That's perjury. When you put your hand on the Bible and you say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth. And so, so help me God in that point, then you purge yourself. So there are... are the scholars believe that one side written on the underside is the commandments dealing with men. Just dealing with the, the thief written down, but it's, it's the whole understanding, it's all of the commandments that deal with men. On the top side is the commandments that deal with God. Love God, love your brother. And so you have this scroll that goes out, which is the size of the holy place of the tabernacle, one side are breaking the commandments towards man, another side is breaking the commandment towards God, and then he says this, where he says in verse 3, he said, this is the curse. You break the commandments, you have a curse. It goes out over the whole face of the earth, every thief that eighth commandment shall be expelled according to this side of the scroll, every perjurer, the third shall be expelled according to that side of it. And I will send out the curse, verse 4, says the Lord of hosts. It shall enter the house of the thief and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name. You understand why I'm saying that it's not just you shall not lie, the ninth part, but you swear falsely by my name. That's the perjury that we're looking for, taking the name of the Lord in vain. And then he says this, and it shall remain in the midst of his house and shall consume it with its timber and its stones. So this is the heart of what he sees, this flying scroll that condemns the nation of Israel, the size of that holy place, condemning it for the sins against man, sins against God. And now verse 5, he deals with now the seventh of the visions that he has. And then the angel who talked with me came and said to me, lift your eyes now and see what is this that goes forth. So I asked, what is it? And he said, it is a basket. Now, this is a great vision. He sees a basket. 
and it's an ephah, holds about 10 gallons. And he says, so, so here's a basket. So, so what's the deal with it? That is going forth, he also said, and this is their resemblance throughout the earth. So this basket is a representative. What's inside of it is what's going out throughout the entire world. What's in this basket? We'll look at verse 7 and 8. Here is the lead disc lifted up, and and this is a woman sitting inside the basket. So he lifts up this lid that is heavy and seals it, and he looks inside and he sees a woman. And then he said, he defines this woman Note this, he says, this is wickedness. I would say it's the harlot of Babylon. But he says, it's wickedness. And he thrust her down into the basket, and he threw the lead lead cover over its mouth. So he lifts it up and goes, look at the woman. Ugly, isn't she? Slams the lid back down. That's what he does. He says, this is the wickedness of the earth. Keep in mind what it said. It is the resemblance, there at the end of verse 6, throughout the earth. The the harlot of Babylon has spread her disease, has spread her sin throughout the earth. And God here traps it in Jerusalem and knows what he does with it. He shows Zechariah, closes the lid, and after, in the end of verse 8, he says, this is wickedness, and he thrust her down into the basket, and he threw the lead cover over its mouth, and I raised my eyes, and I looked, and there were two women coming with wind in their wings, for they had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between them and the earth, and I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they carrying the basket? And he said, to build a house for it in the land of Shinar, when it is ready, the basket will be set there on its base. Shinar. Why Shinar? What is Shinar? Well, if you remember that passage when we went through the book of Daniel, I only want to read you one verse. Daniel chapter 1 verse 2 makes this declaration, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his, Nebuchadnezzar's hand, with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar. It's Babylon. That's all it is. And so we begin to see here that incredible understanding that I'm going to send this back to Babylon. How incredible is that? In Revelation chapter 17, I want to read the first six verses. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me saying, come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. With whom the kings of the earth committed fornications, the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away into the spirit, into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman who was arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a cup full of abominations, and the filthiness of her fornication. Understand, not a pretty woman. In other words, throw the lid back on it. (laughs) And then he says here, and on her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. You understand? It's going to be destroyed. Oh, Babylon, oh, Babylon, the destruction will come upon you. But this is what we begin to see. So you have this woman that is there in a basket. He says, show you what it is. It's the wickedness that is the representative of the earth. It's the harlot of Babylon. And all the kings have drunk with their fornication. And so what do you do? You close it up. And then you have these two beings representative as women with wings. And so they go and they take the wickedness back to Babylon and it makes this statement, they're going to build a house for it. They're going to say, I'm going to make a dwelling for the evil. It's going to be there in Babylon. How incredible is that? 
And he says, and there the basket will be set on its base. And it's going to be taken to Babylon. It's going to be left there until what? Until God goes and judges it in his perfect time. And now in chapter 6, we begin to see this, dealing with the eighth and the final of the visions that Zechariah has. And then I turned and I raised my eyes and I looked. And behold, four chariots were coming from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. With the first chariot were red horses, with the second chariot black horses, with the third chariot white horses, and with the fourth chariot dappled horses, strong steeds. And I answered and I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, these are four spirits from heaven who go out from their station before all the Lord of the earth. The one with the black horse is going to the north country. The white are going after them, and the dappled are going towards the south country. Then the strong steeds went out eager to go that they might walk to and fro throughout the earth. And he said, go walk to and fro throughout the earth. So they walked to and fro throughout the earth. And he called to me, spoke to me and said, see, those who go towards the north country have given rest to my spirit in the north country. We see that there's going to be a work of God and he's going to use these horses, these ones who at one point earlier on in the book of Zechariah were observers. And we see here that you have these four horses and they're coming from between two mountains. Now, a lot of people want to use these four horses and to use them as the horses of the apocalypse. But keep in mind, those horses are what death and destruction. These are not. These bring uh, a real peace to the people of God. Look at again, verse 8. He said to me, spoke to me, See, those who go towards the north country have given rest to my spirit in the north country. They are there as observers, and now they are there proclaimers of the grace of God. So they're basically messengers for the Lord. Now what happens is this. These chariots are coming from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. What mountains are we talking about? There are a couple of possibilities that these mountains could be. One is you could see Mount Zion and the Mount of Olives. That's a possibility. And when you look to those two mountains, they literally are coming basically from the temple, and they are going through that area that's on the eastern side of the Temple Mount. You have the Temple Mount, you have Mount of Olives, and then you have between these is where these messengers go. Some to the north, some to the south. And it makes perfect sense that you would have north and south coming from that as you're on the west side of the temple. And they go from there, and then they spread the news. That's, that's a possibility. There's another possibility that these two mountains could be the mountains that are spoken of in Deuteronomy chapter 27. If you're familiar with those two mountains, according to Deuteronomy 27, verses 12 and 13, it says this, the children of Israel come into the land, and then one group, it says this in verse 10, 12, they shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people when you've crossed over the Jordan. And verse 13, and these shall stand on Mount Ebal to curse. So you have these two mountains. Of course, Shechem is there in the middle. And as you're dealing with that, these mountains also, Mount Ebal to the north, Mount Gerizim on the south. And, and of course, then you're looking at, at here, Shechem being right there in that western little cubby of the two mountains meeting. And that's also a possibility. Some go to north, some go south. But you have one is the mountain of blessing. One is the mountain of cursing. And so when you're dealing with the word of God going forth, it's either a blessing or cursing. And that's the peace of God. It says, don't go here, you'll be cursed. Do this and you'll be blessed. That's peace of God. And so which one is it? I don't know. I honestly don't know. Both fit into the context well. Both can work through what the context is saying. And so you can choose which one you like. I kind of bounce back and forth at it, but I see both being equally true. 
And the bottom line is this. All we know is there are two mountains, and there are two mountains of iron. And, you know, Mount Zion and the Mount of Olives, boy, what took place in those mountains, nothing's going to change it. It's solid. It, it, it's concrete. The same with the, the, the blessings and the curses. They're solid. They're not going to change. They're also of bronze. They're not going to fall apart. They're going to simply go and do what they're supposed to do. So you have these horses that come through, and they go through, and they bring a course at the end of verse 8. See those who go towards the north country have given rest to my spirit in the north country. They go and they proclaim, bring peace. And now in verse 9, something unique begins to happen. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying. Now the visions have ceased. He now has something that he has to do. He says in verse 10, receive from the captives. And now he goes and he mentions some of the captives. Heldai, Tobijah, Jediah, who have come from Babylon and go the same day and enter the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. And he says, I want you to go. And I want you to take from these three men who have now come back from Babylon. And if they've come back, they now are going to give you a gift. You take that gift of silver and gold, verse 11. Take this silver and gold and make an elaborate crown and set it on the head of. Then he says this, Joshua, not Zerubbabel. Note that it's not the governor that he's crowning with authority, but it's Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, as Joshua is now the representative of the high priest, from his place he shall branch out, he shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule on his throne. So he shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. Now, all of a sudden, we see something unique. This is a prophetic word because he says, as Joshua is a representative of the high priest, he's not only a representative of this high priest, but eventually the man whose name is the branch. That branch, according to Isaiah 4, 2, Isaiah 11, 1 and 2, Jeremiah 23, verse 5, he's going to be the Messiah. Again, Isaiah 4, 2, Isaiah 5, Isaiah 11, verses 1 and 2, and Jeremiah 23, verse 5. We see here that's the Messiah. So Joshua is a representative, but uniquely what they do is they don't crown the king, they crown the priest. And keep in mind that no priest ever ruled because they were not of the tribe of Judah. They were not of the tribe of Benjamin. They were of the tribe of Levites. They were a priesthood. They, they couldn't be kings and priests. There was one king and priest uniquely and he was introduced to us there in the book of Genesis, chapter 14, and his name was Melchizedek. Now, uniquely, what happens is this. It talks about Melchizedek, and it says this in Genesis 14, verse 18. Then Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of the Most High God. And then he blesses Abraham and of course, Abraham then gives him a tithe of all. So he brings out the communion elements. Abraham just raises his hand to him to honor, to glorify him, worships him. And all of a sudden, we see that Joshua is, in a sense, going to be a type of a priest who now rules and reigns. Now, when it comes to kings being priests, you guys remember that passage in 2 Chronicles chapter 26? That was when Uzziah had gotten puffed up 
And it says this in 2 Chronicles 26, verse 16, but when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. For he transgressed against the Lord God by entering the temple of God to burn incense on the altar of incense. So Azariah, the priest, went after him, and with him were 80 priests of the Lord, valiant men, and they withstood King Uzziah, and they said to him, it is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priest. And the son of Aaron the sons of Aaron who are consecrated to burn incense, get out of the sanctuary for you have trespassed. You shall have no honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah became furious. He had a censer in his hand to burn the incense. And while he was angry with the priest, leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priest and in the house of the Lord beside the incense altar and Azariah the chief priest and all the priests took him looked at him and there on his forehead he was leprous so they thrust him out of that place indeed he also hurried to get out because the Lord had struck him King Uzziah was a leper until the day of his death he dwelt in an isolated house because he was a leper and so we see that here for he was cut off from the house of the Lord you can't have a king and a priest. But yet uniquely, they don't want to crown Zerubbabel. They want to crown Joshua. Why? Because he's going to be representative of the branch, the Messiah. Jesus Christ is going to be what? Well, look at the end or look at verse 13. Yes, he shall build the temple for the Lord. And understand, that's prophetic. Yes, Joshua is going to help build a temple, but we also know what Zerubbabel, he started the foundation, he's going to finish it. So there's a working. So dealing with this branch, keep in mind, he's going to build the temple of the Lord. Oh, yes, living stones, the temple of God, the church. And so we begin to see, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory. He shall sit and rule on his throne as king ruling as king, so he shall be priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. Both the kingship and the priesthood, those two olive trees being joined perfectly in one, the Messiah. And he will be both king and priest. And then it says at the end of verse 13, the council of peace. This building of, of the uniting of both the, the, the kingship and the priesthood. Now, the elaborate crown shall be for memorial in the temple of the Lord for Helam, Tobijah, Jedidiah, and Hen, the sons of Zephaniah. And even those from afar shall come and build the temple of the Lord. And then you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And it shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. So he says this temple, this crown that's there, it's going to be for Joshua. But eventually what? This, this, this crown is going to be a memorial. Initially, you're going to make it for Joshua. But it's going to be a memorial in the temple as what? Eventually, this temple is going to unite one man who will be both king and priest. And this temple is only going to be what? It's going to be a type. It's going to be a symbol of what? The real temple, us, the church, the people of God, the nation of Israel who've come and received the Messiah. We are the church of God. And how beautiful that is that we see that this is the one that he rules and reigns over as both the high priest and the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And so it's just this beautiful thing that Zechariah begins to do as he has these visions. And the last vision in, I want you to build this temple is what? Yeah, this, this temple is only going to be the partial glory. You have some weeping, some celebrating, but there's going to be another temple living stones, and this is going to be true glory. And the glory of God is going to rest in each and every one of those stones, each and every one of us, and it's to his glory that we can now have peace with God. Because why? He's taken evil away. He said, I'm going to take it to Babylon, deal with it there. And so how beautiful this is that God begins to say, I'm cleansing, I'm cleansing, I'm cleansing. And it's a work that I'm doing, but it's not a work that is going to be done by the multitudes or in, in their might or by an individual in his power, but it's going to be done by his spirit. Let's yield ourselves over and allow that spirit of God to do exactly what he needs to do in our lives and in the church. Amen. Amen. 
Father, we are so grateful for this word, your heart, your love, your grace. How good you are, Lord. We do thank you, Lord, for just how you speak to us and what you desire to to declare. And God, you have removed our iniquity. You've taken it away. And it's interesting that all that iniquity, the, the, the evil, the wickedness of the world, that you simply say you're going to put in a basket, you're going to send it back to Babylon, and there the harlot will be judged. And victory will be yours forever and ever and ever. Thank you, Lord, for who you are and how you work. We are asking for just a moving of your spirit. Knowing, Lord, that as you do what you do so well, it's not by might, it's not by power, but we yield to the leading of your spirit. And whatever you're doing, Lord, we will not despise the little things. If you're going to speak one word in our heart tonight, Lord, that's, we won't despise that. That's a big thing, Lord. It's a huge thing that you're doing in us and then through that, through your church. We can't wait to see how it grows and grows and grows. Help us, Lord, to simply set our foundation upon the rock to know that that's what's important and then let you build upon that. Oh, we give you our hearts, we give you our lives, we give you our ministries, Lord, in Jesus' name and all the saints of God said, amen. amen. Okay there, saints, your, your job,